Good to be back. Yeah. I had left a, a very warm El Paso to a very cold Wisconsin and wanting to come back to a warm El Paso. And uh, it is that. But I notice there's a lot of sniffles going around. So you know, pray for Pastor Sean because he was without he, he was without voice tonight, but he had a little bit of voice to lead us. And so he's going to rest it for tonight. Um, I want to mention to you that um, uh, a dear brother from this congregation, Lalo Balderrama, uh, went home to be with the Lord yesterday. Uh, he's a retired police officer and. Um, also worked for uh, the uh, Child Protective Services after his retirement. And uh, for the last couple of years or so, he's, he was dealing with uh, uh, a multifaceted cancer that, uh, that he had. But um, we will be uh, having the services uh, this coming Sunday night. Uh, the uh, church will be open from 5 to 9. Uh, visitation will go from 5 to 7. And the service, will have a service on uh, Sunday night at 7 uh, p.m. Uh, and then on Monday morning at 10 o'clock, we're going to have a uh, uh, just a short prayer service before uh, the uh, procession uh, to the interment. Uh, and I believe the interment is at uh, Mount Carmel. Uh, but um, probably about 9.30 or so, uh, the police uh, uh, department is going to have a, um, a special, um, actually um, kind of a procession from next door, but uh, come back around. It's something that they do for retired police officers and, and, and also. But that'll be somewhere between 9.30, or probably about 9.30, so just probably best to come to that uh, earlier uh, but the service itself will start around 10 o'clock so um, anyway just uh, please keep uh, his family in prayer his uh, uh, girls uh, grew up actually here in the church and uh, and he just uh, loved his uh, grandson Caleb uh, was coming with him uh, over the last few years or so that uh, was the love of his life to, and so but he loved all his grandkids and, and stuff so um, just urge you to if you can uh, come and, and uh, comfort the family this evening uh, I'd like to have you turn to Ezekiel we're going to continue our study in Ezekiel chapter 10 uh, a couple of weeks ago we started uh, the the passage and uh, only got through seven verses. We're going to pick up in verse eight and uh, and study down through the end of the chapter. Um, <clears throat> much of what we'll see here is something that we've seen before, because uh, back in chapter eight there was uh, this vision that was given to Ezekiel, uh, similar to the vision from chapter one. In that the focus was the glory of God. And uh, we'll see how the glory of God now uh, is connected to the judgment that is to come upon Israel for all of its multitudes of, of sins. But we begin uh, in reading in verse uh, 8, and we'll, we'll just go ahead and do that. Uh, just start reading down through verse 13 to start. Um, verse 8 says, And there appeared in the cherubim, or cherubims, but it's cherubim, there appeared in the cherubim the form of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, behold, the four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub, and another wheel by another cherub. And the appearance of the wheels was as the color of a barrel stone. And as for their appearances, they four had one likeness, as if a wheel had been in the midst of a wheel. Of course, a lot of people have thought that this might be like UFOs or something. 
but uh, it's much greater than that, so uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. And when they went, they went up, they went upon their four sides. They, they turned not as they went, but to the place whither the head looked, they followed it. They turned not as they went. And their whole body and their backs and their hands and their wings and the wheels were full of eyes round about, even the wheels that they four had. As for the wheels, it was cried unto them in my hearing, O wheel. So let's do a little review because that sounds quite uh, <laughs> hard to understand. But actually some of it is that we've already, we've already gone over it from, from the previous uh, chapters, especially chapter 1. But chapters 9 through 11 are a continuation of the vision that Ezekiel received in chapter 8, a vision of Jerusalem and things taking place as the judgment of God was coming upon Judah and Jerusalem. The reasons were clear. An idol was set up in the temple. Now this is something we've already seen. An idol was set up in the temple. Elders of the children of Judah were worshiping the creation instead of the creator. That was seen by that room that Ezekiel was, was told to enter in and to see uh, the carvings or the paintings on the walls of, of various creatures. So they were worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Women were worshiping Babylonian gods and offering sacrifices to the queen of heaven. The priests had turned their backs on God and were worshiping the sun. Now, if you'll notice, most of those things mentioned were people that were supposed to be leading the children of Judah in worship to God. And chapter 9 describes the Lord commanding angels to destroy the city. While the glory of the Lord moved from the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the temple. And, and the, whole, uh, the, the, the glory of the Lord, what is oftentimes called the Shekinah glory, it's, the, it's actually the Kavod glory of God. The very weight of his presence among the people is starting to move out of the, of the temple. To move out of the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and move to the threshold, which is the door leading out. It also reveals that a certain angel, more than likely the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus in a pre-incarnate form, would mark those who were grieving over the abominations committed by their own people. Just as the 144,000 will be marked in, in, in the times to come, marked for their commitment to the Lord. And these were the people that were grieving over the sins of, of, of their own people being committed against their God. And Jesus, with his inkwell, would mark them, or inkhorn as it's called, and would mark them to be the ones not to be destroyed. They would be the remnant when the judgment would come. The Lord would keep them from the judgment that was to come. And I bring to, mind, uh, bring to your mind 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Now when you read the book of 2 Peter, you realize that uh, Peter is making reference not only to Noah and the flood, but also to Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. And the righteous are delivered because God knows how to deliver the righteous. Which confounds me about people today who say, well, the church has got to go through the tribulation period. The scriptures never really teach that. Because the Lord knows how to deliver his people from 
the tribulations and the temptations and the struggles that are going to come mightily upon the earth through judgment. God will not take his people through that same judgment. You think of Enoch, who was taken out uh, back in Genesis. You think of Noah and his family. You think of Lot and his, his family. And time and again, we see all of these uh, examples of God taking people out when the greater judgment comes. Because when that great judgment comes, I mean, it's going to wipe, it's going to wipe the whole world of, of, of its unrighteous people. And we'll come back to that thought later. But the first part of chapter 10 now, which we covered a couple of weeks ago, focuses its attention on the glory of the Lord once again, but this time as the background. The glory of the Lord is the background for judging Israel and Judah's idolatry and horrible profaning of the temple, which I've already made reference to. And the glory of the Lord is nearly and completely out and departed, which brings us to this next passage in chapter 10. So let's go back to verse 8 and let's kind of uh, we're going to kind of go over this and, and actually read all the way down, but I'm going to make some comments along the way. And, and there appeared, verse 8, uh, in the cherubim, the, the angels, the form of a man's hand under their wings. So you know, rather than paint you the picture, you, you just realize that there's, there's hands that are supporting the wings or being under the wings of the angels. And when I looked, he said, Behold the four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub and another wheel by another cherub. And the appearance of the wheels was as the color of a barrel stone. And all of these things are giving us a picture really of the glory of God. This is the chariot of God. This is the throne of God. If you will, the chariot throne of God that is being described. And as for their appearances, they four had one likeness as if a wheel had been in the midst of a wheel. And when they went, they went upon their four sides. They turned not as they went, but to the place where the head looked. They followed it. They turned not as they went. Now the prophet Ezekiel saw in his vision the most tragic day in Israel's history. The day when the Lord withdrew his presence and glory from the temple because the people had become so wicked that they were engaging in corrupt, unholy worship. Now we're told back in verse 5 of uh, chapter, uh, chapter 10 that the sound of the cherubim's wings were heard even in the outer court as the voice of God Almighty when he speaks even though the ears of the sinners were deaf to it all. So the sound of, of, the, of, the, of the wings of the, of the angels could be even heard as the sound of the voice of God. And I mentioned previously that the hands that bore the nails would also be the hands that would pour forth judgment at the appointed time. And then in verse 8, the form of a man's hands, as I mentioned earlier, that are seen under the wings of the cherubim may suggest that the Lord was reaching down to take the hands of his creatures and would have poured on them his grace had they been prepared to receive it. Especially the right hand of God. Because the right hand of God is the, is the very symbol of, of Christ himself. The one who sits at the right hand of the throne of God is Jesus himself. But now that hand would deal in judgment. How often, God says, how often I reached out to you. How often I wanted you to take my hand, to take hold of me, to come and, and be with me and trust me and live with me and live for me. But you would not. So there's always these little pictures of God reaching out. Because that's his mercy 
That's his grace. That's his opportunity that he's giving to his people and to the world today. And again, think of of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. And and you know, every time I think of giving, it's like he's reaching out with his hand and bringing his son forth. That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That is his mercy. That is his kindness. But now in verse 9. Once again, the prophet is describing the, this chariot throne of God. I mean, it's, 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 it's probably hard for any of us to, to, have, described, uh, to have described it like uh, Ezekiel had. But again, remember that Ezekiel is, of course... Uh, inspired you know by the spirit of god i mean he's uh he's he's moved to to this uh description and the chariot throne of god had these sparkling wheels one beside each of the cherubim and the wheels you know wheel within a wheel kind of describes something like a gyroscope as it were <clears throat> with two wheels intersecting each other and the wheels and the cherubim always move forward together and never turns. And that's one of the things we, we, we uh, described in, in the first chapter. That uh, the cherubim and the wheels move forward together and never, they never turn in any other direction than forward. Wherever it was that God would want them to go. And this is a clear picture of God's readiness to always move forward. To help his people or to execute judgment when needed. Whatever it is, God always moves forward. God doesn't retreat. Oftentimes he wants us to retreat. (laughs) When we might be getting a little bit too ahead of ourselves. But God always moves forward. Of course, the subject of this present passage is judgment, so... The cherubim were standing ready to assist the Lord as he executed judgment on Jerusalem and his people. So remember, God moves forward. If he moves forward with mercy, that's what the, that's what the angels and the cherubim who serve him are, are ready to, to assist him. In this case, it's judgment. And so we read on in verse 12, and it says, And their whole body, and their backs, and their hands, and their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes round about, even the wheels that they, they four had. As for the wheels, it was cried unto them in my hearing, O wheel, and every one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. Interestingly enough, when we see the description back in chapter 1, it's the face of an ox, but I'll, I'll tell you why that's the way it is for now. Everyone had four faces. The, face, uh, the first face was the face of a cherub. The second face was the face of a man. And the third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. We'll go back to verse 12. We now read here that both the cherubim and the wheels were full of eyes. And again, this is something now since uh, new, or this is something new since earlier in chapter 1. Ezekiel said only the wheels were covered with eyes, but now the angels themselves are covered with eyes. And the symbolism here indicates that God sees all things and is never taken by surprise. So I often wonder why it is that some people think that they can pull the wool over God's eyes. I mean, really? I mean, we're going to pull the wool over God's eyes? Now, you might be able to pull the wool over my eyes, or I could pull the wool over your eyes, maybe, but I wouldn't want to, but... To try to do that with God is another matter. What what that is saying, though, think about this for just a moment. What that is saying is, you really don't think that God is God. Or maybe you're just having a problem believing that God is who he says he is. If you think you can pull the wool over God's eyes. And again, you can try to pull the wool over people's eyes. But you never can do it with God. It just can't be done. Why? Because God is omniscient. Which means that he's all-knowing. 
And the fact of the matter is because God is God and he's eternal, he has known the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. He knew things before they even happened. And for God to be omniscient simply means that he sees all and he knows everything that happens. And we should, ex- we should respect that about God. That's called reverence. We reverence God because he is omniscient. We reverence God because he is omnipresent, always present. We reverence God because he's omnipotent, all-powerful. No one's all-powerful except him. The present scripture here suggests that God saw the idolatry and every wicked deed of the people. He saw it all. That's why he reveals this to Ezekiel and he says, go in a little deeper. And he says, you think this is bad? This idol here in the temple? You haven't seen anything yet. And there's that hole in the wall. He says, go in there and look at what's inside. God has already seen it, you see. We move on into verse 13 where it says that the wheels now were whirling as it were. As for the wheels, it was cried unto them in my hearing, oh wheel, and they're they're just, they're turning and whirling. The, The fact that they're in constant motion indicates their readiness to carry out the instructions of God. In this case, the emphasis is on their readiness to remove God's presence and glory from the temple. Remember, the glory has been moving from the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the, of the temple, which is the door of the temple, and it's about ready to go. So the wheels are turning. The wheels are ready to take the chariot throne of God out completely of the temple. But in verse 14, before we get there, there is this slight distinction from the previous vision. As I mentioned, the cherubim here had four faces. The face of a cherub, a man, a lion, and an eagle. And in this present scripture, the face of a cherub replaces the face of an ox, mentioned back in the earlier vision of chapter 1, verse 10. Now, one reason for this could be that the face of the cherub was understood to be the same as the face of an ox. But you have to remember something about what they represent. What both the ox and the cherub represent is that they're both servants. The ox was a servant. The cherubs are servants. And each face represents the ministry of Jesus Christ as manifested to us in the four Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew uh, represents and teaches the fact that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Gospel of Mark represents Jesus as the ox in the sense of his being the servant. Jesus himself in in Mark chapter 10 said, "I, I did not come to be served, he said, but to serve. And the King James says, I did not come to be ministered to, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. And so as the cherub, as the cherubim uh, serve God, the ox serves God as well. They're, they're the representatives of the working of the servanthood or the servant aspect and nature of Jesus. I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. The Gospel of Luke speaks highly of Jesus and represents Jesus as the Son of Man. Our connection to Jesus, He is the Son of Man. In the Gospel of John, remember the eagle, that uh, bird that flies high above all the others represents Jesus as the Son of God 
and God the Son. So those are all the characteristics that we see in the Gospels. And, and then, of course, we see here and in other places in the Old Testament. But while, while Ezekiel now was observing the chariot throne of God, the Lord's glory suddenly began to depart from the temple. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. And the cherubim were lifted up. This is the living creature that I saw by the river of Kabar. So again, that refers back to the first vision that, that Ezekiel had seen. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went by them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also turned not from beside them. And when they stood, these stood. And when they were lifted up, these lifted up themselves also, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. The cherubim rose up from the threshold of the temple's door, because that's where they were, and the, wheel, uh, the wheels uh, moved right along with them, never leaving the cherubim's side. The wheels were the vehicle the cherubim used in serving the Lord. And when the Spirit of God stirred the living beings to move, the wheels moved, aiding the cherubim in carrying out the task that the Lord had assigned them. What was the task? Look at verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. The glory of the Lord departed. Now the word is is not found here, but there's another word for departed that's used here. But nonetheless, the same idea applies that is Ichabod Ichabod the glory has departed and so the then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight and when they went out the wheels also were beside them and everyone stood at the door of the east gates I'm sorry, the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. This is the living creature that I saw under the God of Israel by the river of Kabar. And I knew that they were the cherubim. Everyone had four faces apiece. And everyone four wings. And the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings. And the likeness of their faces was the same faces which I saw by the river of Kebar, their appearances of, and, and themselves. They went everyone straight forward. And so the prophets saw God's presence and glory withdraw from the door of the temple and move to the throne above the cherubim and the wheels. This was the final departure of God's presence and glory from the temple. And it should be noted that God's glory has not returned to the temple since this departure. Please keep that in mind. The glory of God has not returned to the temple since this departure. Of course, the temple has been destroyed. Now, there was a temple that was raised up in the time of Zerubbabel. They were just putting brick upon brick. When they went back out of, out of uh, their captivity, and uh, they started, uh, the first thing they did was they, uh, uh, through uh, Ezra, it's told in the story of Ezra, the, uh, the, the raising of the, of the temple. But there was no wall to, to surround and protect. That's when Nehemiah, Sent and then builds the wall. But as far as the temple is concerned, listen carefully, there's no record of God manifesting his glory in a special way, either in the temple built by Zerubbabel, which was during the time of Ezra, or in the one built by Herod, which was the temple that existed during the days of Jesus. And I would have to say the only time that the glory of God came into that temple was when Jesus went into the temple. But if this vision that we're reading about that seems a little bit like, whoa, you know, science fiction, but it isn't. But if this vision teaches us anything, it teaches us 
never to lose a sense of the awesome power, wisdom, and majesty of our God. This vision teaches us never to lose a sense of the awesome power of God, the wisdom of God, and the majesty of our God. Because when we do a wicked and corrupt worship and lifestyle would once again drive the special presence and glory of God from among them. And his presence and his glory will not return until the end time when Messiah returns to set up his kingdom on earth. Step by step, God's glory had withdrawn from the temple. Do you remember why step by step? To give people the opportunity to repent. Step by step. It's like seeing the writing on the wall. At some point it's just going to be too late. So God in his patience and his long suffering, step by step, the glory is departing. You're not repenting of your sins. The prophets are crying out to you. You're not listening to the prophets. You're not doing what they're telling you to do. I'm getting closer to the threshold. I'm, getting, I'm at the threshold now. You still have time. You still have time to put these sins away. To bring them and bring your heart and repent of these things. And even though there were people that were weeping over this, they were saved because of, of, the, of, of the heart that they had for God. But the others, mocking and doing whatever they wanted to do, mocking God by putting an idol within the, the temple itself, mocking God by drawing pictures of idols on the walls, Mocking God by baking cakes to the queen of heaven. We've got to be careful about that even in this day and time. But step by step, God's glory had withdrawn from the temple. And the final separation from the corrupt worship was now complete. It was, it was now complete. God's holiness, you see, God's holiness cannot exist and I should say that God's holiness cannot coexist with wickedness. It doesn't coexist with wickedness. Holiness and wickedness are incompatible. God can have nothing to do with unholy people who continually harden their hearts, reject him, and engage in false worship. Do you think that we're so sophisticated today that there's no false worship in the church of Jesus Christ? There is today tremendously a, a, a great amount of false worship. I mean, there's man worship in the church. Men are being worshipped in the church. Men are being held up in high esteem when it's God who needs to be held up in high esteem. It's Christ who needs to be lifted up in high esteem. Not man. Some doctrines are being lifted up in high esteem. Not God and not Christ. When people continue in wickedness, they, the Lord must withdraw from them, lest he violate their free will. If they, if they choose to live separated from God, he must allow them to continue to live as they wish. That's hard for some people to take, you know, because of, again, certain doctrinal things that people have kind of embraced, you know, along the way. Yet, people continue to fall into wickedness and false worship. First of all, I want you to consider something. Go back to 2 Peter and, and look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, because he, th this, this is what you need to know about the heart of God. 
And it tells us in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. But his long-suffering to us, word, he's, he's, he's patient and enduring with us. Not willing that any should perish. God does not want people to perish. But that all should come to repentance. Now we know one thing, not all will come. But that doesn't change God's heart that he... He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But eventually, and we know this, eventually he must cease pleading with people to repent and allow them to walk in their unholy lifestyle and engage in their unholy worship. Now just remember that sin causes separation from God and when that, when that happens, separation, that, that separation is from his holy presence and his glory. That's what we're being separated from. How do we know this? Well, listen to Jesus in Matthew 15, verse 8. Jesus said, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth. In other words, they draw near to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Which means that week in and week out, people go to church and sing songs and and say the right words, you know, praise the Lord, hallelujah, and so on and so forth. And their lips are saying the right things, but their heart is far from God. I mean, that's painful enough to listen to here tonight. But it's something that does happen every day. Now, Jesus was quoting from Isaiah 29, verse 13. And I want to bring that to your attention because of something that is added here. And that is in Isaiah 29, verse 13. Wherefore, the Lord said, for as much as this people draw near me, with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Now there's the the issue. Their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Once you give man the opportunity to try try to establish some kind of... uh, of a uh, a theological uh, uh, doctrinal treatise as to how things are done when man is left to do it. It doesn't require a lot of the heart. It just requires you to do certain things. So now you have things like like, uh, non-Christian cults like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, Christian science and you just name a whole lot of other things that are so far off because now they've taken it and said, now here's, here's how you do this. But they don't use the word of God and they don't bring the heart to that place of worship unto God. And, and I was just naming non-Christian cults. What about certain sects within the church? Certain groups within the church that begin to do these kinds of separations. It was happening in the time of Jesus because Jesus in Matthew 23, Matthew 23, verses 37 and 38, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets. Now, the prophets being the prophets that God sent to the people to tell them, get yourself right with God, repent of your sins and turn back to God and he will bless you. And they killed the prophets. And stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. And then he says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Your house will be left empty. 
And desolate is emptier than empty. That's pretty empty. Stephen, when he was preaching to to his own Jewish brethren in Acts chapter 7, brings up this issue in, in, in verses 41 through 43 when he talks about the, the children of Israel when, when Moses was up in the mountain with the Lord and all of a sudden the people were getting on air and, you know, make us a golden calf so we can worship God. And in verse 41 says, They made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Is this not taking place in the church today where people are putting certain idols in front of others and saying, well, this is really what Jesus is all about. This is the Jesus that we're worshiping today. Oh, listen, the Jesus that accepts you just the way you are, that says, you know, you come if you're in a, you know, if you're in the gay lifestyle, just come. It's okay. If you're doing this or you're doing that, it's okay. No problem, man. I'm accepting all of that. As if, as if Jesus said, well, I don't believe in the law anymore. The very law that he himself gave us. And that was just one example. They made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And people today are rejoicing in the works of their own hands, saying, we are sophisticated. We know how much better we are than these dumb Bible-believing Christians who, who hold on to the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. Well, you know what? I think I would rather do that. And be called whatever name they want to call me. Than to offend my God. And the Lord that gave himself up for me. And then God turned, he says. Gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets. O ye house of Israel, have you offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? Yea, you took up the tabernacle of Moloch. And the star of your God, Remphon, figures which you made to worship them. And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Well, that happened, didn't it? What is happening even in our own time that is seeping into the church of Jesus Christ? Paul, while exposing the situations of his time, prophesied very clearly the issues of the church today. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to take this in sections because this is a big, long passage that I'm going to read to you. Got to take it in sections. But if you look at verse 20. Now now remember, Paul has already said that, uh, you know, for the wrath of God will be revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who hold the truth, you know, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But here he says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul is saying very clearly, man is without excuse. God can be known. By what was created, God can be known. So what has man done? Man has promulgated the, uh, you know, the, the theory of evolution. And by the way, it's still a theory, except that in, in colleges and universities and in high schools everywhere, where they teach it as, as scientific fact, which it isn't, it's still theory. Why? Because it hadn't been proved empirically it cannot be proved that way because nobody was there to see it yet they'll tell you right away man that 20 billion years ago 60 million years ago the dinosaurs were destroyed by uh, by asteroids how do you know oh we know you know what that's called faith It's a religion.
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I wasn't there, but I know one thing. I trust that. That's faith. Yet, yet, you begin to examine through science, you begin to find out something. The scriptures will substantiate science better than all of these PhDs. I like to call them post-hole diggers, PhD. We got all of that knowledge and no, and, no, and no wisdom whatsoever. So people have bought into all of this stuff. So they're without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That's every one of those university and college professors that try very hard to make your kids who believe in God and grew up in the church to be ignorant. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed. Notice, changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And what do we have today? Environmentalists who say, listen, we need to save the the seals and the whales, but babies it's okay to destroy who are made in the image of God. And don't think that that isn't in the church. The most liberal mindsets in churches today will not stand against evolution and they will not stand against abortion. I want you to take note of the statement so that they are without excuse. The point is that no one can claim ignorance in these matters. No one can claim ignorance in these matters. But you think it's bad enough? Let's read on. Doesn't this sound like this Ezekiel vision, right? Hey, Ezekiel, you think this is bad? Let's look on a little bit further. Let's go into this little room here. Look at, look at verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. You see, when they have bought them, you know, they, they, they bought into this lie and they just pursue it. They've been deluded. God says, okay, I give you up to the uncleanness that you want through the lust of your own hearts. So he says, through uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. I mean, the body is being dishonored in so many different ways today in pornography. Especially. And all kinds of porneia. Do you know the word, by the way? We're going to see it in just a minute. Porneia. It's, 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 it's the word fornication. But porneia is every kind of sexual sin. Well, there's no boundary. There are no boundaries anymore. And what sickened me a few years ago, maybe a couple of years ago, was this interest by women in the church for this, uh, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey stuff. That's an abomination, folks. But we're sophisticated. We can handle it. Paul says, listen, whatsoever things are pure, Whatsoever things are holy, whatsoever things are good. You know, think on these things. But you start filling your mind with all of that stuff. There's no room for the good stuff. Who 
who changed the truth of God into a lie. By the way, again, here, as in, in 2 Thessalonians, a lie can also be the lie. And what was the lie? Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say that? You're not going to die. You're going to be like him. There are, there are, are quote-unquote churches today that are telling you, you're a little God. Please don't call me that. I'm not a little God. There's only one God. Who wants to compete with him? I'm losing my voice by there. Can you tell? It's all Sean's fault. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. Poor Sean. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped. Notice, worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And by the way, don't think that that's just animals. even though it's part of it. Who's the biggest creature around today? Man. We're worshiping man. Think about Hollywood. Think about politics today especially. Oh my goodness. I could spend three hours tonight doing that. I'm just sick of it up to here. For the Lord to give these people up to their uncleanness and lust to dishonor themselves says a lot about the wickedness that has overtaken them to such a degree to not even care about what pleases or displeases the God who created them. But do you think this is bad enough? There's more and it's not getting better. Verse 26 says, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. You know, you can, you can move the letters of, of the word vile around and it, sometimes it just falls on and, and spells out evil. <laughs> but vile is bad enough. Vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. I think we understand that, don't we? Even in the King James, that can be understood. And likewise also the men, <clears throat> leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat, which means it was fitting. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. What is a reprobate mind? It is a worthless, rejected mind. To do those things which are not convenient, which means it is not fit, not right. Being filled with all unrighteousness. Fornication, that's the word porneia. That not only includes... Uh, you know, sex before marriage, but it includes all sexual sin. Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate. In other words, just uh, strife, deceit. Malignity, which is maligning others. Whispers. Backbiters. Haters of God. Despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. Disobedient to parents. Without understanding. Covenant breakers. You make a promise, you don't keep it. Without natural affection, now this is interesting, without natural affection is hard-heartedness hard, hard toward your own people, toward your kindred. It comes from a word that speaks of family love, storge. The word here for, for without natural affection is astorge. The A before means without without a natural affection for even your own family. 
implacable, which is another word for truce breaker. You say something, but you don't keep it. Unmerciful. And notice this, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. People today are just encouraging a lot of other people. Listen, hey, you like your sin? That's great, man. Just go ahead and do it. Enjoy it. Cheering on the sinner. Cheering on the ugliness of sin. You only live once. Really? (laughs) Do we only live once? What does the Bible teach us? There'll be two resurrections. Resurrection of those to life in Christ and a resurrection of those to eternal damnation. So maybe James Bond was right. You only live twice. No, no, no. The scriptures are more important. I'm just trying to see if you're with me here. You're still with me. If you remember our last study, I I, I mentioned the vision given to Isaiah of God, which made him very aware of his own sinfulness. Isaiah chapter 6, you remember that? Let's let's read it just one more time. Let's kind of get caught up with, with, with what we need to be encouraged by before we leave here today. Isaiah 6, verses 3 through 8 says, And one cried unto another, speaking of the angels, in this case, seraphim. It says, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. Now remember, this is a vision that is given to Isaiah. So he's got a vision of of, of the throne room of God. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And then said I, Woe is me! Oy vey. Woe is me, for I am undone. Smashed into billions of pieces. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King. What did he see? He saw God. High and lifted up, and and the train of God filled the temple. The train of God's glory and majesty filled the temple. And all he could say was, I'm undone. And then flew... One of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Fire, purifying. Purging. Cleansing. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? By the way, who will go for us? A triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then said I, Here am I. Send me. Knowing who he was, Knowing what he had done, a man considered righteous, yet one who is in the presence of God says, I'm not anything in God's presence. But once that sin and iniquity was taken care of, God says, whom shall I send? And he was able to say, here am I, send me. 
Isaiah would be cleansed by the touch of this coal. In a sense, Jerusalem would also be cleansed by these coals, but it would be destroyed in the process. And even though what Ezekiel saw appeared to be very symbolic, of course, the Babylonians would burn the entire city. That's not symbolic. That happened. Paul wrote about a cleansing fire, didn't he? Paul wrote about a cleansing fire in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15, when he says, According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he has built there, thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. By fire. When you put those six things in the fire, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, what remains? Wood, hay, and stubble aren't going to remain. That's just the daily things of our lives, good or bad. But they have no value in heaven. They have no value in our eternal life. So they'll be burned up by the fire. But gold, silver, and precious stones, they only become more, more precious by the fire. That has to be our lives as servants of Jesus Christ. That needs to be our lives. Some people will try to build their life on wood, hay, and stubble. That, does, that won't last. They'll be saved, but yet as by fire remember when the church was born that 120 men and women got together in an upper room in Jerusalem on Pentecost and the spirit of God blew through that room and tongues of fire fell upon each of them Fire has to be remembered by all of us that it's a part of our life as believers in Jesus Christ. There's good fire. When we talk about our service to God, we talk about it in terms of having a fire in our lives, a fire in our heart, burning inside to serve the Lord with, with all that is within us. We don't want to be cold. And especially we don't want to be lukewarm. We want to be on fire for Jesus. So we take this prophecy of Ezekiel and we say thank you Lord for reminding us to come back to your truth to live by your truth, to stand on your truth, to, 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 to proclaim your truth, to stay in your truth, because it is our life. The things of this earth will pass away but God's word will never pass away. And so let's live God's word out. Let's live the love of Jesus Christ. Let's live the grace and the mercy and the truth of Jesus Christ each and every day of our lives. And know that even if we stumble, the Lord is there to pick us up. He's there to encourage our hearts. He doesn't you know, zap us, you know, the minute we make a mistake. But I'm not, I'm not encouraging you 
to make any mistakes. I just, you know, the fact is we all are human. We might do that. But just remember, let the, let, let the uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit come like a fire and let it purify your heart. And let it make you strong in the Lord. Not, not in you, but be strong in the Lord. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We surrender our lives, our strengths, our wisdom to God so that we can have his strength and his wisdom. Amen? All right. Is that? Okay. Chapter 10. Whew. This whole passage. Lord, thank you. This is chapter 8. All right. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Father, for the opportunity tonight to, to get caught up again with, with our study in Ezekiel. And, and I hope and pray, Father, that as we have... Um, Considered now, Lord, the, uh, the majesty, the power of your glory, the power of your presence, the importance, Lord God, of us living right before you. I just ask you, Father, to cleanse us and purify us even now, Lord, because we make ourselves available to you. We're, we're, not, we're not able to save ourselves. We're not able to cleanse ourselves. We, 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 we can promise you, Lord, that we're going to do better. But even then, you know us better than we know ourselves. So every day we just want to say, Lord, you lead us and guide us. We surrender to you. Give us your wisdom, Lord. Give us your grace. And take us, Father, where you want us to be and use us where you want us to be used. Uh, Lord, let your light shine from our hearts and our lives. Lord, let, uh, let us be the salt of the earth. Let us be the light to the world. Strengthen us in these things and forgive us and cleanse us now of all of those things that are blocking us from truly just being rejoicing in you tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.